Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hour here on KZMU. I am your host and guide, Blaine. And today we are going to be diving into a subject that I have really, really been wanting to get into for quite a while now, and that would be Colorado River history. And my special guest today on the show is no stranger to the Moab area or the Colorado River, Mr. Roy Webb. Roy, how are you doing, bud? Thanks for coming along. Doing great. Thanks. Awesome. So so uh, tell us a little bit about what you've uh, been, uh, kind of like what's been going on with you here for the, the last little bit. I know you've been working on some projects and different stuff like that. Well, I just finished a uh, film series in Moab for the Grand County Public Library, working with Meg and Jesse on uh, historic river films. So we started in April and I showed, we kind of divided geographically. I showed upper river films. So uh, Flaming Gorge, Red Canyon, Lador, you know, what was covered by uh, Flaming Gorge um, Dam. And then in May we did, this is at Star Hall. May we did, um, and I call it Middle River. So Desolation Canyon, uh, Cataract Canyon, old, these are all films from the Utah River Running Archives at the University of Utah's library, library special collections. And um, these were all 1930s, 40s, 50s. And then the other night I finished up with Glen Canyon films, uh, also from the same source that were all from the 1950s. So these are ones that we collected. I was the head of um, the multimedia archive, so in charge of historic films and photographs for the University of Utah. And I made it my own mission to collect Colorado River history, Colorado and Green River. I've always been, a, I've been written about it for, man, close to 40 years now. Wow. Um, about river earning history, written, spoken, been on podcasts, films, documentaries, everything about it. And um, so while I was there, we created this archive that had uh, individual river runners histories, uh, records of businesses like Hatch River Expeditions and Neville's Expeditions and um, all kinds of stuff. So films, photographs, um, oral histories, artifacts, um, th that kind of thing. I also work real closely with uh, the Jonathan Powell Museum of River History in Green River, Utah. I've been working with them since they started in 1990 and uh, off and on. And I've been on the board, uh, let's see, for probably almost 10 years now. And I'm head of the board now, also on the River Runners Hall of Fame committee. So, um, the I've felt I've been on search committees for them, and we have a really good director now, a woman I used to work with at the Marriott years ago, who's a museum specialist, Janet Smoke. And I'd encourage anybody if you're driving through Green River, stop and take a look at the museum, especially if you're a boater, if you're a rafter, river runner, kayaker. Uh, they have we have some old historic kayaks, lots of old boats. Uh, getting new stuff all the time, and uh, just put an exhibit on Glen Canyon, that was up a couple of years ago, and then uh, they had to had to take it down because they had commitments for other for the space. But now that exhibit will be up until, um, let's see, I think till June of next year. So it, it's up for a whole year. Right. About and it's mostly it's centered around Ken Slight. You know, iconic name in, Mo in the Moab area. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> totally. Kind of like it's called a river guide remembers. So what it was like to take a trip through Glen Canyon with um, Ken. So worked closely with them. I've worked, kind of gotten into um, seeking out and saving historic boats. I mean, also with the museum, uh, we brought in Les Jones aluminum kayaks, homemade aluminum kayaks. Uh, Brad Dimmock of Flagstaff donated his um, his 
faithful replica of Bert Loper's last boat, the boat that Bert Loper was in when he disappeared in the Grand Canyon in 1949. Uh, Brad made a, a perfect replica, took it down the river as he always does, and then he donated it to the museum. It's kind of a new centerpiece. Hmm. Also worked with the museum in uh, the Sweetwater County Museum, not Sweetwater, but uh, Uinta County Museum in Vernal with some historic boats that were in a barn at Flaming Gorge for about close to 60 years that just sat there and were rotten away. And we finally convinced the uh, the family to donate them to that museum. So those are still on display there in Vernal. So if you're going through Vernal, stop and take a look at that. So um, historic boats are have become something I've worked on a lot to try to save those from just rotting away or being lost. Hmm. So that's kept me busy. I retired about five years ago from the library and that's kept me going. So Yeah, sounds like you are... Very busy, man. <laughs> and we, we all greatly appreciate all the work that you put in with Colorado River and Green River uh, history. And uh, and so we are uh, extremely excited to learn a lot of uh, things today about the Colorado River history concerning human history on the Colorado River. And so um, I would love to just go ahead and get into that with you. Um, just right from the very beginning, um, the indigenous people. Uh, so... Uh, uh, so, yeah, if you want, just uh, kind of go into that here with us for a little bit. The, there were a lot of uh, people that lived around the Colorado River on the, both north and south of Glen Canyon. It was kind of a, a a little bit of a dividing point. Now, I'm not an archaeologist, but I've read a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be at one time and ended up switching over to history, but that was a long time ago. But uh, the Fremont people to the north, what well, we've termed the Fremont people and the ancestral Puebloans, that were formerly called the Anasazi on the south side of the river, and so the the Glen Canyon and the Colorado River was kind of a kind of a, a transition point. You find um, ancestral Pueblo stuff north of the river and Fremont stuff a little bit south of the river. So they lived around the river, of course, because there was water. And they at the time, you know, this is a thousand years ago, twelve hundred years ago. There was a, a wetter climate, and uh, they could get into all the little canyons, and they farmed everywhere. When Glen Canyon was uh, flooded, when the dam was built, and they did an archaeological salvage survey, the University of Utah on the north side, Museum of Northern Arizona on the south side of the river, they found over 1,300, um, uh, I'm sorry, 3,500 archaeological sites and documented those as best they could to collect their artifacts. There was also a historical salvage survey at the same time. But so they looked in, in the small dwellings, especially along the river, there aren't any really large communities, you might say. Those are usually up on the uplands above, uh, like south down by Mesa Verde and Crow Canyon and those kind of places. Uh-huh. And then over in Utah, to the north of Fremont had much larger dwellings too. But they lived all along, every side canyon along the river had a little little family dwelling or two or three, four families. They grew corn in the sand bottoms. They uh, collected food, they hunted, and they left petroglyphs everywhere as as you've seen i'm sure and everybody who's been along the river has seen petroglyphs rock art and pictographs everywhere and so they were it was a well-populated area at the time Uh, and then about a thousand years ago around well i should say a little less around 1200 or so 12 1300 in our reckoning the climate started to change it got more the instead of the steady rainfall storms got violent or frequent washed away the sandbars uh, there was prolonged periods of drought, and the the people were forced to move. And most accounts, and the 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 Pueblo and peoples themselves 
say that they they didn't disappear. They just moved mm-hmm. into the um, what are now the Pueblo areas in the, the the Hopi mesas in Arizona and the Rio Grande pueblos in New Mexico and some even farther south down into Mexico. Mm-hmm. So the Fremont people uh, didn't, as far as anyone knows, they they just returned to being hunter gatherers and you know didn't live in the, the large communities and large structures because they just couldn't feed themselves. Yeah. So then in um, around by our time, around 1400, I think, the um, the Navajo and Ute began to move into the area, the Ute from the north, Navajo uh, from a little more east, and uh, started to move into the area, and they took over the, the canyons around the Green and the Colorado. The, um, the Colorado was, again, kind of a dividing point between uh, the Ute to the north and the um, Navajo to the south, although the Ute were once, especially once the Utes got horses, they became more dominant. And the Navajo followed the traits of the Puebloan peoples a little bit. They were a little more settled. They grew, they had orchards, and uh, they had, once this, they made a lot of contact with the Spanish, they had sheep and so on. The Utes got horses and became more plains-like, like the, the tribes of the plains. So they would they would participate in buffalo hunts. They would travel great distances. Uh, they were uh, warriors. They were you know warlike, and so they lived in the area until contact with the um, Europeans right. in the 1500s. Hmm. Well, they still lived in the area after that, but I mean they they lived alone in the area and they dominated the area of all of uh, Colorado, west, western Colorado, eastern Utah, and um, those. So those two are really. There were Paiutes too. They weren't quite as dominant. They were related to the Utes, but not as uh, not as much as the two, the Ute and the Navajo. They were the dominant peoples who lived in the area around the the Colorado River in, in the Four Corners area. Yeah, I find it quite interesting um, just how the dynamic can go with them living along the Colorado River, you know, and. The uh, cliff dwellings that are like, just as you mentioned, and all the petroglyphs, I mean, there is just so much evidence of these people along the Colorado River. Yeah, there really is. It tells you that the area was really populated. You know, now we think of it as just all empty land, but at the time there were routes in and out, there were dwellings, there were, there were, uh, they were uh, growing corn in just about every little bottom. And uh, it was a much more populated area than we would think of it today, that it looks like today. It looks just like desert that's uh, that's unpopulated, but that wasn't the case at all. They and they traveled back and forth. You know, we we think in our terms, we think, oh, how, you know, walk from Utah to Colorado, that's just too far. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have any other way to do it, and they didn't think a thing about it. Even in the the big cultures in the farther into New Mexico, they walked long distances and carried incredible things, big logs to build the big dwellings that, well, all the way up and down the Chacoan dwellings, you know, Aztec. Um, uh, Crow Canyon and uh, Chaco, of course. So, and they walked, they had routes across the river that we that knew little about. And, you know, every time you hear about uh, Spanish or Mormon or other explorers finding a route across the Colorado River through Glen Canyon, for instance, mm-hmm. those are always old Native American routes, mm. the ones that they had found first and they just, they stumbled on them. Kind of like the crossing of the fathers from like Escalante and I think it was exactly. 1776, I believe. Exactly. Very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, that was an old, that was a Ute Ford. Really? And he, uh, they, they chiseled, uh, they chiseled the rocks that way the horses could get down there. Exactly. Yeah. They, had to, they had to make steps for the horses. 
Otherwise, the, the you know the Utes. Uh, I'm not sure the Utes must have taken an abo to use that ford. Mm-hmm. They must have taken horses across it, but maybe their horses were more uh, you know more. Um, what am I trying to say? Sprightly. That's wrong. But anyway, a little more used to those types of conditions. <laughs> yeah, more, yeah, agile. Yeah. yeah, man, that is incredible. So, in terms of the river being sort of a highway system for them, uh, like let's say, for instance, they want to migrate from um, up here to down there. Like, would the river have been their mode of transportation, or do you feel like that a lot of them would have been carrying the supplies along the river, but kind of high up in the cliffs and canyons, and they sort of knew how to traverse the area? Yeah, you know, the, it, that's really problematic because there's there's no oral tradition among the Hopi, you know, the modern Puebloan peoples, little or, oral tradition, as far as I know, among the Ute and Navajo, that they actually traveled on the river. They had ways to get across it because the Ute for would have known how to build um, bull boats. You know, a, a buffalo skin stretched over a willow frame that made a little temporary boat. But, you know, you look at the areas, the only place they could have really done that to travel on the river, as we think of it, is in Glen Canyon. Otherwise, cataract is too difficult. I mean, they could have done... Um, Labyrinth is still water, and then the, the Meander Canyon below Moab. Mm-hmm. But there, as I said, there's really very little oral tradition. There's little, there's there's no physical evidence that I know of, and um, it might have been something that they just didn't want to do. You know, some people have, pe- some people have have uh, taboos about rivers, or it was just it wasn't practical for them. Yeah. It was easier to find a nice ford, a nice especially when the water's low. You find an easy ford and get across the river and take one of your routes out. Yeah, you know, back and forth across the river. Yeah, and I find it I find it interesting. Okay, so on uh, there is a huge petroglyph panel on the uh, Potash Road here in Moab, mm-hmm. and there are two separate areas. One's kind of right there, far on the right, a little on the panel. That's sort of, if I can put it this way, uh, closer to town, and then just around the wall. There are these two petroglyphs, and they both look extremely the same. They're squiggly lines, just and they they do they both do the same thing. They sort of go back and forth, back and forth, as if a river is meandering and snaking through. And then there's this huge horseshoe bend in the petroglyph. Um, yeah, makes me think of Meander Canyon, and then you've got the gooseneck, and it's almost like. I feel like that, the, you know, my personal interpretation on these is I feel like they're almost sort of like maps of where the river kind of goes from that point beyond. They could well be. You know, we we really, unfortunately, we have no way of knowing. And I mean, the we as modern American Europeans kind of don't really have any way of knowing. I'm sure the Puebloan peoples in Arizona, New Mexico, I know that they have a better interpretation of this from oral tradition passed down generation after generation. But it could well be maps. And, um, you know, when you think of it in those terms, you have to, I mean, we can see things from above. See what I mean? Yeah. So we can see things from above and we can see those lines and they how they trace and things. Mm-hmm. They didn't really have that ability unless they were up on a cliff, but you couldn't see the whole river. So, um, but they could well be maps. They could be, you know, showing places they cross, showing journeys they took. It could be a symbolic journey. It could be just a record of I did something fabulous because I went all the way across the canyon kind of thing. There's really no way of telling, and it's endless, endless speculation. Mm-hmm. But it's fun to speculate. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear that too. I, I think about those a lot. I look at a bunch of different groups on Facebook that are 
you know, petroglyphs and rock art and structures and things like that. Mm. And they're, they're enjoyable. I love seeing them too. Yeah. One of the questions that I get asked, um, cause I'm a backcountry guide here in Moab and I do backcountry tours, uh, into the Canyon lands and also the backcountry of arches. Anyways, as we're kind of the, the kind of the route that we go is down the potash to the Schaefer trail and out onto the white rim. So of course we're seeing a lot of the Colorado river, um, in the back country kind of way above those cliffs. And one of the main questions that I get asked by people whenever we're speaking of indigenous folks is what did the river look like when they were here? Did it look the same as it looks today or was it higher? And I know that we, that there was six like seasons of drought and stuff, but was a droughts to them, like basically what we're seeing today or was it a lot worse? Um, was there massive flooding? Oh yeah. When they were thriving, the river probably would have stayed higher because there would have been more rainfall mm -hmm. because was, the climate was much wetter. You can tell by tree rings. And so when they were thriving or would have been higher, but, um, at the same time, it would have had those same seasonal variations that we see on non dam controlled rivers. So the Colorado would have flooded in major amounts. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and again, just depending on the weather and the, what happened during the winter, like we have now. Mm -hmm. So the Colorado, the, I know the green, the same thing, the upper green river, uh, now all we see is a little trickle coming out of Flaming Gorge Dam, mm -hmm. but flooded, it would run up to 20 or 25,000 cubic feet per second. Mm -hmm. And it was a big, major, strong current. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the Colorado, which has even an even bigger, doesn't have a bigger basin, but it has more snow, you know, but, and so once the two came together at, at the confluence, that would have been major floods. <laughs> it would have been really rolling, man. Yeah, it would have been. <laughs> the, the biggest recorded flood that we know about was in 18, about 1885, I think. Okay. And uh, so a huge flood came down, went through the Grand Canyon, came down the green of Colorado, went through the Grand Canyon. And by, by that time on the lower Colorado, there were um, there were railroads and steamboat landings and towns and all kinds of stuff. And a lot of that was washed away. Mm. And so the railroads sent out an engineer or engineers to see how they could prevent this. How big was this flood mm. was the question. So how could we build above that? And um, the story I've always heard is that one of them went to Lee's Ferry, to the the Lonely Dell Ranch, that's just a, up the Perea River there, and asked the the ferryman what what he knew about it. And he said, "Well, I don't know, but I I can show you where I had to pick a cat out of a save a cat out of a peach tree." And so the they went out and he showed him where the cat had been and where the floodwaters had been, and the engineer was able to calculate back doing all their engineering things, and that the flood was about three hundred and eighty five thousand cubic feet per second. One thing I really enjoy doing on the river is looking for old driftwood. You know, you know, a lot of times you see driftwood really high, and you'll see huge trees way up above you on the river. And I always think, what a flood that was! Yeah, was that was that that flood, that big flood? Was it when the glaciers melted at the end of the Pleistocene? Mm -hmm. And which imagine what the floods, those floods would have been like. Oh, good. So um, I, I love looking for those kinds of things, old driftwood fields that are way up above the river. Yeah, and imagining those floods. That reminds me of in 1855 uh, when they had attempted to uh, form the Elk Mountain Mission right here in Moab. Uh, they had, uh, as soon as they got here, they crossed the river and uh, right on the river, basically, and today's uh, uh, Matheson Wetland Preserve here in Moab, that's where they started, had this massive garden that they went ahead and planted. 
Then the Utes kind of sort of came down and they were already starting to build sort of makeshift homes. And they pointed, uh, this is according to journal entries, by the way, they had pointed uh, way up on the rock and they showed them the driftwood that you're talking about. And they were like, hey, uh, <laughs> you're going to be, you're going to be gone, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's the reason why the Elk Mountain Mission was built about a mile inland from the Colorado River right here in the Moab Valley. Yeah. So huh. interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I love driving by driving by the Motel 6 and thinking about the Elk Mountain Mission. <laughs> right? You should go, go into Moab, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did a whole episode on the Elk Mountain Mission and uh, diving into that subject was... It was, it was, it was a really good, it was a really good, uh, time. Did you use that the book by the guy? I can't think of the guy's name. He lives over in Salina, uh, wrote a book about it. You know, the Elk Mountain Mission. Yes. Calling uh, Tom McCourt. Yeah. Tom McCourt. I, yes. I think I knew a friend of his, they worked together on that. Yeah. That's a fascinating subject. Yeah. It's, it's a very, very fascinating subject because, you know, crossing the river, I believe it was sort of like mid to late summer, you know, when they did. Um, and, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and every single time I sort of drive on that first part of the Potash Road over there by uh, sort of as you're almost past the uh, the Umtra site right there on the left, I always try to picture where where could they have crossed like right here? You know? <laughs> well, so, the Spanish terrible for them, you know, I mean, the Spanish have been crossing that. Exactly. Yeah, since the early part of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something that I kind of want to uh, kind of flow into next right here is... You know, uh, early, early, early explorations, you know, and sort of what, what these uh, guys had encountered with the Colorado River. Well, uh, the first one that we know about was a guy named Rivera. I think that was in the 1760s. Mm -hmm. And he I think he only got as far as the river and didn't cross it. Dominguez and Escalante went the other way. They went east of the river up through Colorado. But by, um, and it, one of the reasons was that that when they, it was under Spain, the Spanish crown prohibited trade with the native tribes. Mm. And um, so they had to do it on the sly. If they wanted to trade with the Ute and the Navajos, they had to uh, do it um, off the books, kind of. Right. But after they won their freedom from Spain in 1821, mm. Mexican traders, uh, you know, Mexicans, uh, people started coming north and they found the route up through from Santa Fe over through the Four Corners into. Um, Moab Valley, and there's a lot of sites associated with the Old Spanish Trail. Mm -hmm. um, Cane Springs, as you go, you know, as you're driving south on the Highway 191, Cane Springs, the um, the uh, uh, what's it called the rock over on the west side, and the name just flew out of my head right there. So right there, uh, I think Cane Spring. Oh, oh, um, little pass there. Yeah, the where the hole in the rock is right there, south of town. Yeah, yeah. right in there. Mm -hmm. And then a little, well, you know, right around there too, over toward. Uh, Paradox is the yeah. Las Tanajas, the tanks. Yeah. And I went over there one time, and if you walk over there, there there's always water in those great big huge tanks cut into the natural sandstone. Mm. I mean, not, not cut, but that have been eroded into the sandstone. So there's a lot of things. And so they cross the river, and I'm not exactly sure where. There's a couple of really good books on that, In Search of the Old Spanish Trail by uh, Crampton and Madsen that mm -hmm. probably has that in it, but I haven't read it for years. But uh, they would cross the river there and then go up to... Um, across that big old flat desert there to Green River, and then right by Gunnison View was the other crossing, the crossing of the Green. Mm. So they must have uh, they must have spent a lot of time in the Moab, in the Spanish Valley, as it's called. Yeah. And, you know, they would have stopped there to 
uh, tighten all their harnesses and, um, you know, maybe build, uh, maybe they would build small boats of some kind. We don't really know. They don't talk about it too much. Yeah. But so there would have been, um, they would have spent a lot of time in that area. And so uh, the training went on up until um, well into the 1840s. They were going from Santa Fe and they would go uh, old west into California. And a lot of the trade was um, from California it would be hides coming back and they would take manufactured goods from Mexico and from Santa Fe uh, to over to California and then traded for hides and horses. Sometimes they drove huge, huge herds of horses back because there were so many in California. And unfortunately, they also traded in slaves. Yeah. They would uh, kidnap indigenous people and, and sell them in Santa Fe and in California as slaves. Yeah. So it was a, quite a trade. There were big annual caravans back and forth that might have, um, you know, 5,000 horses and a 150 or 200 men and all kinds of pack mules mm. and beef cattle that they would drive and then they'd eat them as they went along. So that was, and they they did a lot of side exploring because Spaniards were much, uh, the, and the Mexicans were prospectors too. So I'm sure there was prospecting in the La Salles and the mountains along the way where they were looking for gold and things. And you always hear stories about that. I'm I'm not sure any of that's true, honestly, but <laughs> right, right. They, must have, they must have prospected because that was something they were very much on the look for. Yeah, kind of like, hey, we're taking a few days break here in this valley. Yeah. And you got some guys who are like, well, hey, we're going to go up in these mountains for, I guess, a couple of days and see. Yeah. You know, see if we can find any gold or silver deposits or anything. So, right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the old Spanish trail, um, you know, because it sort of became obsolete. It's looking like around early 1850s, I'd say, because they found a much easier way. Uh, that yeah. you could take a wagon up here. Because, <laughs> I mean, the old yeah. Spanish trail was so long. It was the longest, most arduous uh, pack mule route in the country yeah. uh, from Santa Fe to Los Angeles. And so, um, and oftentimes a lot of people ask me, well, why couldn't they just cross the Colorado River down below the Grand Canyon, you know, to start off with? Like, why did they, you know, try to find for years and years and years a way around that? Um and one of those things that I read about in that book that you just mentioned, you know, about the old Spanish trail, I uh, I actually just read that book a few months ago. And and uh, it was because, you know, of uh, indigenous people that were down there. They, uh, the the uh, early explorers down there, they had considered, in their opinion, uh, these tribes and clans to be a little too hostile. Um, so uh, Yeah, Mojave and the Yuma and yeah. those. Yeah, and well, uh, they were not treated well by the Spaniards. Right, and so that yeah. created a generational hostility Absolutely. that remained for a long time. And plus, the deserts were just that much harsher there. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the Moab, the Moab Desert, and all that. So, uh, but the, I think the every the accounts I've heard too, just like you say, is the generational hostility that the Spanish had generated themselves by treating the people so harshly. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you your opinion on this um, as a um, as a historian. Um, the crossing of the fathers, right? Um, why do you believe that that was not made the route across the river for the old Spanish trail? Just too difficult to access. You know, it's too far down into the canyon country. There's a, a lot of really, uh, you know, they were, Dominguez and Escalani, when they crossed there, they were desperate. I mean, they were lost, basically, and they had- Trying to get back to Santa Fe. Trying to get back to Santa Fe. They'd started- they decided to return in central Utah, and then they made their way to the Colorado River, and they realized they couldn't get across. They came to 
uh, what we now call Lee's Ferry, but that's a, a ferry site, not a ford, and they couldn't get across the river because mm. it was, even though it was late by then, it was, uh, I think it was almost December, but they just couldn't make it across and they had to get out of there. And if you go to Lee's Ferry and look up on the cliff uh, just upriver, there's a huge sand dune. They named that place the Lee's Ferry area. They named it San Benito Salsipuedes, get out if you can. But then they found this huge sand dune and they were able to get up to that and then imagine horses struggling up that mammoth sand. Yeah. And one, but once they got up on top, hmm. the same thing. They were into Glen Canyon. And so they were coming to a thousand foot cliffs. And, um, you know, they, they were worried about starving to death. They were eating their horses. And uh, so when they found that uh, little little hole in the rock, you know, just a basically a crack and hmm. realized that there was a trail there. There was an indigenous trail, probably a Ute or Navajo trail mm-hmm. that crossed the river. And it may have been even older. I mean, the ancestral people may have used that too and probably did. Yeah. Um, they, they took that route, but it was still a very difficult journey to get from there because you had to cross the sea. That would be, I'm just thinking of a mental map that's south of Navajo Mountain. It's just too difficult. And it's impractical for um, pack mules. You know, I mean, if it's just a few people on horseback or a few people on foot, and you, it's just impractical to be think about carrying goods and making any kind of money, really, any kind of profit. Right. I mean, it's just like the problem with the the hole in the rock people in 1880, the Mormon pioneers. Mm-hmm. You know that they people used that route for a little bit after that, but it was just too difficult. Yeah. It was so the canyon country was so dry and so hot and so arduous with so many deep canyons you had to cross and go down through and that kind of thing. Mm. It just wasn't a practical route. Yeah. So hit the Moab Valley and shoot across. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um I am I'm one hundred percent loving this. Like this is this is fantastic. So now, you know, we've seen we've been talking river crossings here for a few minutes and you know, I'd like to kind of get into going down the river, you know. Um uh, the first explorations down the river and of course, you know, a name that everyone on the river is gonna know is uh Mr. Powell. And uh, I believe, uh, yeah, 1869, am I right, his first one? Yeah. He was, uh, you know, his story is so well known, I I won't go into the whole thing, but his idea was to explore the last geographic problem in the interior of the United States, Mm -hmm. the canyons of the Great and Colorado River. Mm -hmm. Where did they go? Would people live there? What was it like? Could you survive going through it? And so on. And there were all kinds of legends about it. Uh, there's, There's one great quote I always love from... John Charles Fremont, who was the the pathfinder, who was in the uh, he he's the one who just determined that um, there was no river crossing east to west, or uh, yeah, east to west in the interior west. The the myth of the San Buenaventura, mm. the Rio de San Buenaventura, which the Dominguez Escalante had said. So he went around the Great Basin and determined that it wasn't. And he wrote in camp in the Great Basin. He said the course of the Green in the Colorado is but little known and that little derived from vague report. But the lower part is reported to be smooth and as it approaches the Gulf of California, mm-hmm. is reported to be smooth and tranquil, while the upper part is manifestly broken into many falls and rapids. It is probable that in its foaming among its lofty precipices, it presents many scenes of wild grandeur, but though offering many temptations and often discussed, no trapper has been found bold enough to undertake a voyage with so certain a prospect of a fatal termination. So that was the state of knowledge about the Colorado River when Powell set out mm. in 1869. And he he funded it himself. His first trip, he uh, used his savings, 
He got a little bit of money from the Illinois Natural History Society. He got an order from Ulysses Grant, who was uh, president at the time, to uh, be able to draw his rations from army posts and so on, and built his famous uh, three big boats, the Whitehall tender boats, and then the little scout boat, um, and then just put together a crew of veterans of the Civil War. Almost virtually everyone was a veteran of the Civil War. In fact, there was only one, uh, Andy Hall, I think, that was not. He was too young. And um, so um, 1869 set out in uh, on the newly completed railroad. It was completed up to that. And just a, two weeks before that, the rails had been joined. It had difficulties from the start because of the design of the boats. And Powell, even though Powell had been on the Mississippi and the Ohio and the Tennessee rivers, and so he built what he knew, which were uh, deep draft round bottom boats, and they were totally unsuited to the um, rocky rivers of the West, the co- green in Colorado. Mm. And of course, lost a boat in Lador right at the outset. Just Ulster Falls wrecked one of his boats, lost a third of his supplies, uh, came down, um, just had problem after problem, and uh, he was after that he was much more cautious, and so they ended up portaging all all the rapids. The men just hated it because mm. they said we're hungry, we're tired, and we're lifting these thousand pound boats and a thousand pounds of supplies. Although that dwindled yeah. as they went along um, all the time, and he just the men just cursed him in their journals, Ooh. and uh, so it was a very fraught with Chinchin this trip. Yeah. So uh, finally made it through. Um, you know, and named all these places, uh, Lador, Red Canyon, uh, Desolation Canyon, Labyrinth, Stillwater, uh, all, all the places, Cataract Canyon and Marble Canyon on down. So the first real um, first real exploration, but it turned into a race for survival at the end. And Powell's goal was to survey, to, to gain knowledge, you know, to see how deep the canyons were, how tall were the cliffs, uh, what kind of minerals there were, all that kind of thing. And he didn't wasn't really able to do that by the end of the 1869 trip. Mm. So he came back in 1871 with the, the same boat design, but a more amenable crew, who were some of them were his relatives, mm. and people that he knew had scientific backgrounds, surveyors, um, geologists, things like that. And they they kind of went in fits and starts. They went all the way down uh, through um, to Desolation Canyon. Powell dropped out at that point and um, went over to Salt Lake. His wife was there. She was ill. He rejoined them below that. They all went through a cataract. They they decided to abandon the river or leave the river at Glen Canyon at, at uh, Crescent Creek, I think, and then come back a little later. And uh, so the trip, it wasn't a one long continuous flow like the other one was. And the important thing was that he had been there before. There wasn't that background that, you know, always in the back of your mind, are we going to come to a big hundred foot waterfall and all sit here and starve to death? And, um, and he also wanted to find out what had happened to the three men who had left at the end of the 1869 trip. Yeah. So he came back, and they they finally finished it. They got back on the river late in 1872, through the Grand Canyon, um, left the um, river at Kanab Creek because the the water was high, and the, you know there's always a, a monsoon flood in the fall. The water was high, and they were concerned about the Native Americans, the Shivwits, who had who had supposedly murdered the three men and so on and so on. Mm. So they abandoned the river at that point and left the boats. And um, then Powell went on to, his men stayed around Kanab and around in their surveying for another few years. Powell went on to great fame and became the, you know, the father of government science 
and his that story excited interest in the Colorado River, and um, that because it was all every newspaper in the country. He was lionized. He went across the from his first trip on the train, stopping crowds of people, waving at him, and you know speaking to um, groups and so on. Yeah. So that excited so much interest in the Colorado River that uh, but an idea started to form at the time that was called uh, they called nature's sluice box. A sluice box is a is a box with baffles in it that you put muddy water through, and the gold being heavier, if you're searching for gold, the gold being heavier will drop down into those baffles. Well, somebody said, what about the whole Colorado River system is a giant sluice box? Gold is, there's obviously there's gold, because we've always said, you've said these big, huge gold booms up in Colorado and Nevada and Wyoming and, and Utah and all over. I mean, they've done all this gold mining, and so that gold gets washed downstream, and eventually it makes its way down to the bottom of the sluice box, the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. And so um, they, and the only place you could really exploit this idea was Glen Canyon because, you know, there was just, there wasn't the technology and there wasn't the skills to go look for gold in Cataract Canyon and Grand Canyon, even though uh, people tried and Cataract became known as the graveyard of the Colorado because I think so many of those people tried. So by the, the late 1800s, there were quite a few people that were prospecting in Glen Canyon. And one of those is, uh, well, the, is the best expedition of 1891. And they set out from Green River, Utah, down through Labyrinth Stillwater, wrecked a boat in, uh, I think, at about Rapid 21 in Cataract Canyon. I'd have to look that up. And left that famous inscription, number one, sunk and down, hell to pay, in uh, somewhere in Cataract Canyon. Yeah. And they made it out in the a rain boat and left and never came back. Mm. And, of course, um, just before that was... Um, Another guy got an idea to exploit, uh, um, a guy named Franklin Mason Brown, who was a gentleman of substance in Denver, the idea that they would build a railroad down the Colorado, connect with the, the Denver-Rio Grande, which crossed the river at Green River, Utah, connect with that, build a railroad all the way down following the river to Southern California, and that would haul coal from mines in Colorado to the growing cities of the South um, Southern California. And so they, he put together a party, um, totally unprepared and inadequate party of people. Well, the only kind of the only good part was Robert Rooster Stanton, who was the engineer, and he was a very very well known engineer. And they tried to build a railroad. They tried to survey for the railroad and went all the way down through um, the labyrinth. They, labyrinth Stillwater had just horrible time in cataract because they had these small boats that were unsuited and they they were easily wrecked mm-hmm. and um, stopped at Lee's Ferry, recruited themselves, and then went on. Uh, and at uh, about mile 11 in the Grand Canyon, uh, Brown was thrown into the river and disappeared and was drowned. Mm-hmm. And so they carved a little inscription there, right below Soap Creek Rabbit over on the left. And so uh, carved a little inscription. They went on with the survey and um, they're... Uh, shooting, you know, shooting their angles and stuff, and uh, two more men drowned. Uh, um, Brown and Richards. Is that right? No, that's not right. Um, boy, names are flying out here. I have so many names in my head. <laughs> anyway, two more men down at uh, mile twenty-five, and so yeah. Stan abandoned the trip at the time mm. and climbed out. He came back the next year in with in eighteen ninety with a much better, more sturdy boats. And the important thing was everybody wore life jackets. Mm-hmm. They had, they had, yeah, life jackets were common. I mean, if you were a life-saving crew on the coast, 
or at, on the Great Lakes, you had a you had a vest with channel sewn in it with cork hmm. stuffed into it, and that was a the same basic design. It's like the high float, you know, the extra sport high float. Yeah, life jacket, same basic design. So this time, Stan insisted they they wear them, and he also brought a photographer from um, Colorado. And the photographer uh, things they started out uh, within not even twenty miles down. The photographer uh, tried to get a better view, stepped off a rock, fell about twenty feet onto his head, and they had to carry him out. And he was, you know, he was badly injured. And so Stanton taught himself how to use the camera. They completed the survey, showed that the railroad was feasible. And there's even a place in uh, Grand Canyon about, well, right around Bass Rapid, where there's kind of a big open area that's called Stanton's Switchyard. Mm-hmm. And that's where Stanton had, had thought he would put a switchyard for his engines, mm-hmm. where the railroads could kind of move around the, the locomotives and the cars and stuff. By the time they got there, oil had been discovered in Southern California, and the whole thing was a bust. Mm-hmm. And Stanton <laughs> went broke. Wow. But he came back in. Um, so by now we're into the period of prospecting. The, the boom, the rush started about 1893 on the San Juan. And so that like the Mendenhall Loop, that was, he was a prospector. Uh, you know, Cass Height and uh, Bert Loper, all of them came because of the the kind of mini gold rush. And the those ideas, the there was a lot of gold in the bottom of the Colorado River, but it had been moved so much that it was flower gold. It was called very, very fine little flakes of gold. But there was a lot of it. So Stan came back in 1898 with what he called the Hoskinini Mining Company and built a huge dredge, which he figured could get, he had a process that was going to dredge up all this muck and get the gold out of it. And that too was an utter failure. And uh, Stan, the old, the, about the most positive thing about the river he did was write an enormous 2,000 page handwritten manuscript about the history of the, the, the river and the engineer, I think it was called, that was never published. Parts of it were published, but. So, so that's into the period of that. Um, by then, there was so much notice about the Colorado that uh, other people, especially the government, started thinking, we need to divide the waters of the Colorado. This is the period in the early part of the 20th century mm-hmm. when well, you know the states, Arizona, Colorado, California, New Mexico, Utah, they're all growing. What are we going to do about the Colorado and how are we going to control the floods? Mm-hmm. So we needed to build a dam. So they sent out uh, more dams. So they sent out the surveys, the big surveys in the 1920s. The 1921, it was uh, Glen Canyon and Cataract Canyon and the San Juan River. 1922, they surveyed the Upper Green from Green River, Wyoming to Green River, Utah. And 1923 was the big survey of the Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. the Bird's Eye Survey. Mm-hmm. And so they uh, sent out those big surveys and they used what was called a, a Galloway-style boat. At, in the 1880s, there was a guy up in Vernal, Utah, who was he was a prospector and trapper. And he developed his own boats, which were a small skiff that was had a flat bottom and a, kind of a rake to it so that it would be more maneuverable. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, he turned the boat around and faced downstream, mm-hmm. which whereas Powell had used the standard pull for strength. And so you're looking over your shoulder the whole time and uh, trying to make your way through these rapids, and that didn't work. And so Galloway turned the boat around stream and, and went on many uh, expeditions. He went all the way from Wyoming to through the Grand Canyon in 1896. Hmm. The surveys used a modified version, a bigger version of those boats. And they had, um, so they were, they were quite a bit bigger and they, you know, they still had a few mishaps here and there, but uh, those were much more successful. The, 
the uh, I got a little ahead of myself with um, in 1909 Galloway um, also meets with Julius Stone, who had invested in the Hoskinini Mining Company mm-hmm. in Stanton's Dredge, and takes him all the way down the river because Stanton or Stone just wanted to see. He was a wealthy industrialist, Julius Stone. He just wanted to see what it was like, and so he's usually considered the first paying guest, the first mm-hmm. paying guest that's taken by a guide on the river. 1909, the Cold Brothers. In 1911, who had started a photo studio on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, heard about this and they wanted to make a movie of the whole length of the river. So they got the design from Julius Stone of his boats and uh, took their their hand crank movie camera down the two brothers, Ellsworth and Emery Cole, and uh, in two boats, the Edith and the Defiance. Mm-hmm. And one of those, uh, I'm trying to think of which one it is is on display at the um, museum in Green River, the Powell Museum of River History. One of those is loan from Grand Canyon National Parks collection. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the original boat there. Oh, nice. <laughs> so um, I think it's the Defiance because Edith has a patch because it wrecked one time. So anyway, um, so they did that. And then uh, Emery Kolb showed that film. It's, it's actually listed in Guinness Records as the longest playing film ever. <laughs> That because he showed for until he died in 1975. Wow! Um, his little studio there. He showed it. He narrated, and after a while, he couldn't. But so uh, so by this time, there's a lot of publicity about the Colorado River, mm-hmm. and with the surveys and the idea, they chose the site. They actually chose dam sites all up and down the river. Mm-hmm. Had, if they had their way, the whole Colorado and Green and all the tributaries mm-hmm. would be one pool after another, mm-hmm. just this gigantic network of dams and tunnels and stuff. Yeah. Fortunately, they did not. And um, so when the when the uh, Hoover Dam, Boulder Dam, was starting to be built in 1928, that caused great excitement about the river. You know, there were newsreels by this time. They were shown in movies. There were newspaper articles on the wires and so on. And so there was a lot of publicity about the Colorado. And that caused people to want to go. And one of those was a guy named Clyde Eddy, who was a... Uh, he worked for a pharmaceutical company. He was a veteran of World War One, and he he took a uh, I won't call it madcap, but kind of a a uh, Don Quixote sort of trip in 1927 or 1929. And with uh, he had these mahogany boats built. He was a wealthy guy, and and recruited a crew of pink wristed collegians. He called them because he had fought with them in the trenches in the war. And they uh, he turned he had boats were enormously heavy. And he, he followed Powell's idea that he would turn them around. And they, they just had all kinds of mishaps. And he wrote a really fun book called Down the World's Most Dangerous River, mm-hmm. where he's, it's unintentionally funny. He thinks he's being serious, but he's just so determined and so, yeah. such a martinet. He was a campaign hat. He woke everybody up with a whistle like he was in the, <laughs> well, it's a great book. Yeah. But that brought enough, and um, the dam and everything brought enough publicity that, uh, people started to move to the area. One who did was William E. Nevels. He actually moved because there was oil mm-hmm. around Mexican Hat. Uh, and and he, he was kind of a wanderer. He'd been in the Klondike in the 1890s up in Alaska. And so he moved because there was oil. And his son, Norman, moved with him. And you know, eventually, through a long series of things, and I've actually written a whole book about this, um, he, Nevels formed a, Norman Nevels formed a river company, Nevels Expeditions. Mm-hmm. And started taking people down the river and really became the first well-known outfitter. And he was a real publicity hound. He he wanted people, to, he wanted to make this a business. He wanted people to know about it. 
you know, he wrote long, long letters uh, that he kept carbon copies of mm-hmm. and just corralled anybody he could find with a camera to take pictures and was very successful. He was very well known mm-hmm. and uh, took people down that mostly down the San Juan and then Glen Canyon. That was his bread and butter. He do 10, 12, 15 trips a year. And he'd always take a big trip, go through down the Grand Canyon, go all the way down from the green and so on, things like that, uh, until he he was a better bowman than he was a pilot. Mm-hmm. And he died in a in his own plane in 1949, along with his wife, mm-hmm. um, Doris. At around the same time, uh, Bus Hatch, well, there was a big Hatch family up in Vernal and still is. Mm-hmm. There are lots and lots of Hatches. And so they, uh, Bus, again, I've written a book about this too. Yeah. Uh, but and his and his pards got the idea that they were going to go down the river, and so they started in the early 1930s with a boat that they got the design from Parley Galloway, who was Nathaniel Galloway's son, and uh, he was in jail in Vernal. One of the uh, one of the members of this group, a guy named Frank Swain, was a deputy, and so he and Bus Hatch would sit and talk to Parley in jail, and he said, "If you'll." If you'll bail me out, I'll build a boat and I'll take you down the river. Well, they bailed him out and he took off. But they, Bus was a carpenter. They were all carpenters. And uh, so they built their own boats. And that, uh, they they were also well-known, really well-known um, by, at the end of World War II, when um, they started really ramping up on the, um, the, the Colorado River Storage Project, the CRSP, to turn a natural menace into a natural resource was the catchphrase they used. We're going to build all these dams. We're going to generate all this electricity. We're going to, they're going to be safe from the communists because they're too far inland to be bombed and so on. They had all kinds of reasons. And mostly it was economic. Of course, it was, it was going to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the dams was to be built in Echo Park, which is in Dinosaur National Monument. That caused, and there are whole shelves of books written about this, the Echo Park Dam controversy. That caused a huge controversy and uh, it also caused people want to see what are we talking about here. There's all this, all this science, all this talk about this uh, river, the Yampa and the Green, Echo Park. Let's go look at it. How do you do that? The only way to do it is with Bus Hatch. He was the only one who had the boats. His son Don convinced him to buy the surplus boats, rubber boats. At the end, the end of the war, uh, there was so much equipment left over from the uh, World War II that you could buy a ten-man raft, which is kind of about the same size that we use today, but it was fully equipped, life jackets, pumps, paddles, everything, little wooden screws to, if you had bullet holes in it from being, when you're crossing the river and the Germans are shooting at you, and uh, just fully equipped for $25. And so he bought the whole fleet of these things. And so bus started taking uh, large groups down the river. The Sierra Club got involved and they started taking large groups. And then those boats, you didn't want 15, 10 mans, so they started using bridge pontoons. Mm. And that was really the genesis of what we see, the commercial river running industry that we see today. Yeah. Was um, Bus Hatch and Don Hatch, Hatch River Expeditions, uh, during the Echo Park Dam controversy. And once that that all settled out, mm-hmm. again, there was so much publicity generated about it because it was a huge national controversy mm-hmm. and a natural, sto- natural story. Uh, so many people started saying, wow, that looks great. I want to do that buy a surplus boat. There were surplus centers all over the country. So you buy a surplus boat. The Hatches did, George E. White did, Harry Eelson did, uh, local, just guys everywhere mm-hmm. uh, um, bought these boats and started taking them down the river. And that's all those, if you if you go back and, and trace the lineage, a, a friend of mine in uh, Flagstaff has what he calls the begats. 
you know, like in the Bible, Moses begat, so mm-hmm. on, on river companies, begat, who begat um, Grand Canyon Youth Expeditions. That actually, Georgie begat that because Dick McCallum started with Georgie and so on and so on. Anyway, all those things trace back to those early rubber boats, those early inflatable boats. And then by the 1970s, the supply of those was kind of running out. And uh, uh, one company, which had built those boats in uh, West Virginia, Rev Prefabricators, started building a boat that was designed as a river running boat. It wasn't a surplus boat. It wasn't a, a, an assault crossing boat or lifeboat or anything. It was built in the, the first ones they built in the 1970s were the Green River boat. Mm-hmm. And then they had a series, the Yampa boat, the Selway boat, which were different sizes. But the GRB, the Green River boat, was really the first one. We I found one on on Facebook Marketplace one time and bought it. And so so it's in the museum too, because that GRB is so important. And after that, especially in the 19, um, by that 1980s, 60s, 70s, 80s, recreational river running just boom, yeah. shot through. And they started having to put in regulations. Because, you know, where, where in 1950, you'd have 100 people going down the river. By 1960, 1965, 1970, you had thousands of people going down the river. Yeah. So you had regulations. You had to have safety regulations. You had to have health regulations. You had to carry out your poop, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, man, you know, and then today, look at it. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. So all those, the, the regulations we see today actually came about from outfitters. The Western River Guides Association was an early uh, outfitter uh, association, and they were the ones who saw what was happening that there was just toilet paper all over the sandbars, yeah. that trees were being chopped down for fires and Man. and so on. And they went to the states, Utah and Colorado and the Park Service, mm. and that at said, uh, we have to have regulations on this. And so um, that's where all that kind of thing came from. Yeah. And now it became the thing that we all do today and love so much. Yeah. So. Well, man, uh, so we got about five minutes left on this, and I've got just a couple of questions here. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, so I've got just a couple of questions here for you. Um, and one of those questions would be, what are the best sources for accurate information? Well, uh, that depends on which one you're looking at. Okay. You know, the uh, the Powell expedition, for instance, is very well documented because every one of them on the first trip and on the second trip too, almost every man kept a diary or they wrote big long letters in the newspapers back home. Mm. Those were all collected by the Utah Historical Society in the 1940s mm. and published. But then uh, in the early 2000s, the University of Utah Press uh, gathered those all up and added more that had been discovered since mm. and published all those, the Powell Diaries. Mm. So there are uh, four, four volumes, I think. Mm. So that's a that's an accurate source. That goes right to the source yeah. on Powell. Um, uh I, again, if you look up those figures. I read. I wrote a book about Bus Hatch. I edited all of Norm Neville's journals, and um, that kind of thing. So it depends on which ones you're looking at right. for accurate information. And as with any historical t- stop topic, or any, you know, we always joke about when you ask a geologist what what do you see over there, they say, "Well, that's a huge controversy." Yeah, <laughs> it's this thing out of the house, and that's true about history too. There are many histories. I mean, every. Buzz Hatch had a history. Norman Nevels had a history. Robert Rooster Stanton mm-hmm. had a history. And so if you're looking for the truth, it's that's not going to be there. But there's going to be, there's a lot of stuff out. And, you know, I've, I've worked on this, as I said, for close to 40 years. I've been in a, a lot, helped a lot of people. I really enjoy 
when other people come to me and say, I want to write about river history. Yeah. Let me here. Let me give you all my sources. That's that kind of thing. And, um, so I, I'm always happy to look at, at books at back of beyond and think oh, I would help with that one. I help with that one. Oh, right. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. The archival sources, the university of Utah is, um, we created the Utah rivering archives when I was there. Northern Arizona University, the Special Collections and Archives, is another great archival source mm-hmm. um, for river running history. They've they've done a massive Grand Canyon oral history program mm. with a guy named Lou Steiger has put that all together. The one of the big sources is also is uh, the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, and that's a private library. But there was a guy named Otis Marson who was a, started with Norm Nevels mm-hmm. and then became kind of obsessed with the river. Uh, he and Nevels kind of fell out, but Marson kept collecting things and, you know, diaries, letters, right? He wrote to all the early figures in those days. And so that all ended up in his collection at the Huntington Library. So those are the three really main sources. Utah State Historical Society has has, uh, materials too Mm -hmm. because they ran it longer. But the University of Utah, NAU, and the Huntington are the three three gems of uh, archival river history. That's awesome. Yeah, because I know a lot of river guides that... Uh, that, that study, they research the river history because that's their interp, you know, when they're yeah. sitting at camp, you know, <laughs> on Cataract Canyon yeah. or up in Westwater or anywhere, and they're sitting at camp and people are going to start asking questions. And so, you know, yeah, having having this information is just, I think it's awesome, you know, to have that on oh, on a tour. I've you know, written some guides. Oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Oh, man. Well, man, listen, I, I, I greatly appreciate this, you know, um, and so uh, I've, I've myself, I've learned a lot. And uh, like I'd mentioned before, this is a subject that I've been really kind of wanting to, uh, to uh, dive into here. And uh, so, yeah, what a, what a great time. <laughs> well, I, I would encourage your listeners really quickly to, to sure. start by museum in Green River. It's the only museum that's dedicated to what we've just been talking about. The only museum in the country that that collects artifacts, that collects boats, that collects life jackets, oars, everything. And um, I'd really encourage them to stop by when you go through Green River, talk to Janet, the director, Elaine, the curator, and they will um, take you on a tour through the museum and the and the new exhibit. And also in late September is the uh, River Runners Hall of Fame. So watch for that. This year, Kim Crumbo, Martin Litton, and Dick McCallum are the three people being honored. So it's going to be quite a thing. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Roy. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, uh, join me uh, next month right here on the History Hour. KZMU. We'll see you guys later.